Good morning, everybody. Please be seated. Thank you. Well, I guess I got invited back. <laughs> I thought last time, I must apologize, I thought last time I, my sermon would be about 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, I clocked in at 36. Um, I'm really sorry. Uh, I was brought up as a Baptist, and we don't do 10, 15-minute sermons. Um, uh, my, my first sermon when I was 17 was an hour and 10 minutes. So don't complain about 35 minutes. That's short. Um, I, I did preach earlier this morning at the early service, and uh, unfortunately the, the trains were not running on time. So I'm, I hope I'm going to edit it down a little bit uh, today. Today's gospel is about literally a mountaintop experience. And that is a phrase that has entered our vernacular. We talk about mountaintop experiences that we have. These are moments of intensity, life-changing moments, moments of illumination, uh, moments of transcendence, where we seem to break the shackles of time and space and enter into a new awareness or new understanding of the world in which we live. Who's ever had a mountaintop experience? We can get mountaintop experiences from a variety of different types of experience, right? Some people can get them from literally climbing up a mountain. And at the top of a mountain, you have this incredible sense of achievement, and you're higher than everyone else, and you get to see uh, what other people don't see. Sometimes you get a mountaintop experience from competing in an athletic event, winning a great victory, a moment of personal or professional breakthrough. It could be in your relationships, in your friendships, in your marriage, with those that you love. For me, my mountaintop experiences almost always come with music and Intense experiences while I'm listening to music is the way in which I have that access to transcendence. In the gospel reading today, the disciples go up a mountain with Jesus, and he is transfigured uh, in front of them. And transfigured means to change shape or to change form. In fact, the Greek word, the, the Greek word that's used in the gospel is a word that we use in English. It's metamorphosis to change shape or to change form. Jesus looks different to the disciples. And unlike most people who hike up a mountain who then look down at the incredible view below them, the disciples who go up the mountain with Jesus here look up to see the incredible view in front of them as Jesus is transfigured, as his face begins to shine like the sun up in the sky and his clothes become dazzling white. And Moses and Elijah suddenly appear with Jesus, which is pretty cool, right? Because if you're Jewish and, you know, those are people who are like totally in your MVP list right there, Moses and Elijah. Moses, the, the giver of the law, who very famously ascended a mountain too. We read about it in the earlier reading from the Hebrew Scriptures, when he went up the mountain to receive the law, and he also encountered something of the glory of God. And Elijah, who famously did battle with the prophets of Baal, 
um, on top of the mountain in Mount Carmel, you know, where they couldn't light the uh, sacrificial altar. And then Elijah has it all doused in water and then calls down fire and brimstone and uh, uh, the altar alights. And uh, then he kills 350 prophets of Baal. They didn't really talk about that in Sunday school, but that's what happens in the story. Now, what is happening to Jesus here? We are getting a revelation here or an unveiling of who Jesus really is. And hidden in that word, revelation, and hidden in the word, unveiling, is the word, veil. Veils hide things, right? If you're wearing a veil, your face is hidden. Or a veil may be hung like a curtain to block out the sun into a room. And in his human form, Jesus' divine glory is hidden from us. He seems to be flesh and bled, blood, like a regular human being. He gets tired. Sometimes he loses his temper, mostly when the disciples are around. <laughs> he expresses human emotion. He needs to eat. He needs to drink. But at this one moment on top of the mountain, the disciples have this mountaintop experience where the veil is pulled back a little bit, just a corner and they see something of the divine glory and the majesty and the power and the magnificence of Jesus in his divine identity. And these experiences are associated with mountains um, in the scriptures. We read about the experience that Moses has at Mount Sinai. Um, I was lucky enough to visit Mount Sinai about 11 years ago. Um, it was an amazing experience. You should definitely put um, climbing up Mount, Sion, uh, Mount Sinai in the middle of the night uh, on your bucket list. Um, I took a, uh, a Bedouin Uber, uh, which is a camel, up, up the mountain. And then you hike up the last 450, 500 steps. And you get there about 4.30. And you get to see the sunrise over uh, northern Arabia, over the land of Midian. Uh, it's an amazing experience. Um, but when I was there um, in 2011, just after the Arab Spring, um, the Egyptians, because of all the disruptions in Cairo, had moved all of their troops out of the Sinai Peninsula, where they guard the border with Israel. And uh, an organization called Al-Qaeda had moved into Sinai and were making a lot of money kidnapping tourists. So my experience going in and out of Mount Sinai wasn't that spiritual or holy, because there were a lot of people with machine guns around. Um, and uh, Israel actually declared a curfew at their border the day I was leaving, and I had to be driven at about 110 miles an hour up the highway uh, back to Israel with Egyptians talking rapidly in Arabic uh, with a machine gun there. And then uh, uh, when I get to the border, because I'm a United Kingdom citizen, I get to go through the border very nicely. But all the Palestinians who were returning to their homeland after vacationing or visiting fam family and friends in Egypt, they all went through a horrible humiliation you know, as they were made to wait in the hot sun and then all their possessions were gone through by teenage members of the Israeli Defense Force. It wasn't, didn't feel like a particularly holy experience. Then in the psalm, the psalmist mentions another mountain, Mount Zion, which is the mountain upon which Jerusalem is built, where David created his capital city, the city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is not a particularly holy place today. It's one of the most contested pieces of real estate in the world. 
and three of the great monotheistic religions of the world, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, fight and bicker over access to real estate in ways that are not very Christian, not very Jewish, not very Muslim, not very spiritual, not very holy. And the last mountain we see today is the Mount of Transfiguration, which is traditionally identified with a mountain up in central Galilee called Mount Tabor. Um, Mount Tabor, at the time of Jesus, had a Roman fort on top of it. So it probably wasn't the mountain that Jesus was transfigured on. It was probably maybe Mount Hermon, uh, up nearer to Caesarea Philippi, which is in the Golan Heights today. But Mount Tabor is kind of a religious experience today because um, in order to get up the mountain, you can't drive buses up there. The, the roads are very, very narrow that wind around the mountain. So you get in these little minivans, and the Palestinian drivers go like the clappers. Uh, they don't slow down. They have occasional passing places, but you think you're going to like go smack bang into the van that's coming down the mountain towards you. And there is a lot of praying that goes on as you go up and down uh, Mount Tabor. Um, but I'm not sure it, uh, it was holy in that particular sense. Our mountaintop experiences are few and far between. And the disciples have to come down the mountain afterwards with Jesus. And Peter typically blurts out something impetuous. He wants to preserve the mountaintop experience he's having with the other disciples. He wants to build little booths, little tents. Let's, Jesus, let's have a camp out. Look, I'll build a booth for you and one for Moses and one for uh, Elijah, and we can all hang out here, and we can keep that mountaintop experience going. I wonder if a lot of people end up abusing certain substances because they want to artificially create and preserve those mountaintop experiences. But we have to come back down into the valley afterwards. The disciples see Jesus transformed in his appearance. And we live in a culture that is obsessed with appearances, with the surface of things, with externals, how things look to other people. And I wonder if social media exacerbates that obsession with appearances because we want to present the best possible version of ourselves to the outside world. I teach students who are applying to go to colleges, and they are obsessed with, and their parents are obsessed with, creating the best version of themselves in their college application. That's their avatar. They have to have the best grades, they have to have the best extracurriculars, the best athletic profile, the most community service hours. They're all Nelson Mandela's and Mother Teresa's applying to go to university, and Einstein's and Stephen Hawkins as well. And it must be really difficult you know, to maintain that incredibly perfected version of yourselves that of course we know is not the truth about yourself. And many people kind of create these perfect versions of their families as well. What they call Instagram families. The perfect holiday photo, the perfect wedding, the perfect vacation, the perfect family.
it's pretty amazing when you do see someone transfigured in their appearance. I think I've only experienced it once in person. I sometimes take students on trips, uh, community service trips to different parts of the world. And years ago, I took a group of uh, school students to Tanzania and Kenya. And we did some community service work. Uh, we helped build a kindergarten at a school in Tanzania on Lake Victoria. And we spent an amazing week um, at a girls' school in Kenya that we had fundraised for. This school took girls from all over Kenya, from all the different tribes of Kenya, the different religious groups, the different cultural groups. Didn't matter whether they were rich or poor. If they were smart enough and they applied, they could get into the school and they could come and they worked together and they learned from each other. And these girls are now going on to study in college and they're becoming doctors and attorneys and uh, nonprofit leaders and they're going to be the future leaders of Kenya. It's really exciting to spend a week with them. But we did some fun things as well. We had some time in the Serengeti um, in Tanzania doing a little bit of safari. Um, uh, I uh, almost had a heart attack when uh, we were doing evening uh, roster and, and one of our students had disappeared from the campsite. Um, it took us 50 minutes to find him. Uh, we, had, uh, we could hear that lions howling outside the campsite. Uh, our guide had seen a black mamba snake in the camp earlier that day. Um, I was mentally composing in my head the email I would have to say to his parents um, about how we had lost her son in the Serengeti. Uh, he was actually in his tent the whole time. His, uh, his uh, tent mate had looked inside and said he couldn't see him. He was there. He was just huddled up in his sleeping bag, but we didn't know that for 15 minutes, so that was kind of crazy. But I want to tell you about a girl who was on that trip called Jennifer. Jennifer was not the typical kid that goes on one of these trips. She wasn't a particularly gregarious, kind of go-getter sort of girl. Uh, she was very studious, very, very academic. I think she was an only child. She came from a, an immigrant family um, from China. Um, her parents were both very hard workers, professionals. They had incredibly high expectations of her. They put a huge amount of pressure on her, which is what happens to a lot of the kids at my school. Um, but not particularly healthy. Um, and uh, she was a very studious, kind of head down kind of person. Uh, uh, not a, a, a big profile at school, not very social, a butterfly, kind of awkward in appearance, awkward in dress, you know, not part of the, the cool kid club. But she'd come on this trip and she had, as was usual, she had kind of flown under the radar on this trip and not done anything particularly noticeable. And when we were in Kenya, we had this amazing four-day uh, uh, trek with the Maasai tribe, um, who are this amazing tribe um, in Kenza, Kenya and Tanzania. Uh, they are people who live close to the land. Uh, uh, they are warriors. Um, they have an, a tremendous uh, uh, connection with the natural world. And we were really lucky to spend a couple of days with them on safari, trekking animals, uh, camping with them, uh, eating with them. And on the last day of our trip, um, they decided to throw a celebration for us. Um, they killed a goat, and uh, the Maasai drink uh, goat blood as an important source of protein, so it's pretty interesting to see a, a goat jugular used as a fountain. <laughs> Sorry for the vegetarians here. Um, and then they skinned the goat all in one piece, and they roasted it, and they served it up as a curry, and it was delicious, and we all ate together. And then we lit a fire, and then 
the Maasai went away, and then they came back all in their traditional costumes, you know, with that beautiful woven uh, um, kind of plaid pattern that they often wear, this gorgeous jewelry. Uh, they had their spears, um, their bows and arrows. They were singing. They were dancing. They do this amazing jumping thing where they can jump vertically about four or five feet in the air. It's quite incredible. And slowly, one by one, they started you know, picking up on our kids and trying to get them to come in and join in, join in the singing, join in the jumping, join in the dancing. And they bought some headdresses and some jewelry as well, and they were putting on some of the girls. I think maybe some of our girls became engaged to some of the Maasai warriors that night. I'm not exactly sure. And then one of the guys, one of the Maasai, picked on Jennifer. And she did not want to get up. But another Maasai came the other side, and they both grabbed her hands, and they pulled her up. She's covered in head to toe in mosquito protective gear. She's got a hat on. She's got a neck thing. She's got gloves on. I mean, it's boiling hot, but, you know, she's, she's like completely veiled in many ways, you know, in uh, all of that protective gear. And they try to get her to sing with them. And they start moving around the fire, and they're trying to get her to dance. And slowly but surely, she begins to shake off those inhibitions, those fears, those hang-ups about who she is and what she's capable of. And you start to see that smile creep across her face. And her face began to shine. And then we started hearing this peculiar, unearthly sound as they're singing and they're dancing and they're dancing around the fire. She began to whoop, I guess. She began to vocalize how excited and joyous and liberated she was feeling. And it was amazing to see. All of us noticed it. All the adults, all the other students, all the Maasai noticed this girl reborn, transfigured in front of us. It was like a before and an after moment for her. And I was just thinking about that this week. I'd love to talk to Jennifer six years later. I don't know what she's doing now. Maybe she's a pre-med student somewhere uh, doing her residency. I think that's what she was going to study. I think she'd got into John Topkins. I'd love to talk to her and, uh, about that moment around that fire. And we saw what that experience meant for her. But I wonder what that experience meant for her. I saw another example of that this week in the news. Did anyone follow the story of this little Aboriginal boy from Australia? Anyone see that story in the news this week? He's a, a boy who suffers from dwarfism. Um, uh, uh, um, and he's relentlessly bullied and teased at his school in Australia. He's an Aboriginal boy. And his mother, heartbroken by seeing her son coming home every day, beaten up and crying and tormented, had filmed him crying in the back of her car and was pleading uh, and posted this on social media and was pleading with people, why do you do this? Why do you do this to my child? Why do you hurt him so much? And this thing went viral in Australia and soon you know, celebrities and movie stars uh, and sports stars and politicians were posting things in support of this boy. And I saw, uh, I've been following this story all uh, week 
And then yesterday I saw a, a clip on the news. Uh, he had been contacted by one of the leading rugby teams in Australia. And they had allowed him, they had chosen him to lead the team out at their home game yesterday. And this little boy, you know, who you had seen broken and crying and miserable in the back of his mother's car. And yet his mother had looked at him as a mother looks at every child. With love. With unconditional love. And now as you saw him lead that rugby team out onto the field yesterday, I encourage you to go and see this clip. His name is Caden, spelled Q-A-D-E-N. He was transfigured. He was 50 feet tall. He was the king of the world. He had totally been transfigured by all of that love and all of that support that he had received in the last week. I also got to see this last week as well on my guilty pleasure, which is America's Got Talent. Does anybody watch America's Got Talent? It's a safe space, you can admit to it. And my favorite group this year was a group of uh, dancers and gymnasts from India called The Unbeatable. They had competed in America's Got Talent last year. They hadn't won, but they come back for the Champion of Champions tournament this year. And they come from a slum in Mumbai, a slum in Mumbai that I had visited last year with a group of students. It's the largest slum in Asia. Over a million people live in this slum. And Mumbai is a metropolis, a megalopolis of uh, 23 million people. And all the trash in Mumbai is taken to this neighborhood and dumped there in the slum. And everyone in the slum works through all of that trash, finding everything that's useful, that's reusable, that's recyclable, and they process it, and that's how many of them earn their income. They're seen as the group of people that everyone else in Mumbai have left behind. And Mumbai is a crazy city. You know, there is a, a residence in Mumbai that's owned by one of the billionaires. That's a 20-story building, a $2.5 billion home. It's the largest, it's the most expensive single-family residence in the world. 20 stories high. There are four people who live in it, 600 servants. And it's right next to a slum. And... When these kids won the America's Got Talent Championship last week, you could see them transfigured. Because all their life, they'd probably been looked at like the garbage that was taken to their neighborhood as human trash. Many of the kids there were orphans who had run away from abusive homes, who had been abandoned by their families. Some had maybe even been sold into sexual slavery or economic slavery. But now they were the champions of the world, and you could see how transformed they were. But as I was thinking about this text this week, I was thinking, like so many things when it comes to Jesus, we've probably got our view of the situation the wrong way around. We are looking at Jesus through the eyes of the disciples in the hope that we too will have these glorious, transfiguring, mountaintop experiences. But what really matters, surely, is the way in which that mother looked at her bullied and tormented child. And what really matters is the way in which Jesus looks at his disciples. 
because Jesus' gaze is a transfiguring gaze. He doesn't see the appearances that we see. And when we look at ourselves, often our gaze at ourself in the mirror or in our introspection is harsh and judgmental. We are dissatisfied with ourselves, how we look, how we behave. We don't meet our expectations or our own standards. But that's not how Jesus looks at us. The voice from heaven says, this is my son, my beloved. And when Jesus looks at us, he says, you are my daughter. You are my son. You are my brother. You are my sister. You are my beloved. Just as the disciples blurt out their silliness about building booths, and then suddenly Jesus is with them, and he touches them, and he says, do not be afraid. It's not how you look at me. It's how I look at you. When Jesus tells his parables in the Gospels, he says, those of you who have ears to hear, let them hear. Some of you will hear a little bit about seeds and birds and wine and vineyards and uh, weddings, and it's right over your head. You hear, but you're not listening. Common experiences, teachers. But now let us think, those of us who have eyes to see, let them see. Let them see how Jesus sees us and how Jesus sees others. The mountain of transfiguration in the gospel has a parallel, another mountain where Jesus is also transfigured. It's called Golgotha. And the Bible makes that clear to us because when Jesus is crucified on the cross, we are also seeing something of God's divine glory. And the mystery of God's divine glory is it's not just dazzling faces and bright white clothes. It's also the revelation, the unveiling of God's love for us in his son dying on the cross. And the gospel says that as Jesus dies on the cross, the veil of the temple is ripped in two from top to bottom. Now, what is this veil of the temple? Remember, veils hide things. The temple in Jerusalem is the house of God. Now, God doesn't live in his temple in Judaism in the form of a statue or an idol because that's against the Jewish law. God is not a created thing. God is not bronze. God is not wood. God is not stone. God is a living being, a spirit, a transcendent being. So in the temple that Herod the Great builds at the time of Jesus, there is a big cube in the middle of the temple called the Holy of Holies. There's a floor, there's a ceiling, there are three walls, and the open area is covered by a huge curtain or a veil. And the Jews believe that God enters into that space, and that space is filled with the presence of God. The Shekinah, it's called in Hebrew. 
the Shekinah, the presence of God. That was the presence of God that Moses encountered at the burning bush. Moses was in the Shekinah of God on top of Mount Sinai, which is why when he came down, his face was so dazzling white, he had to put a veil on. And the Ark of the Covenant in the old temple was filled with the Shekinah of God. That's why the Nazis want to find it and weaponize it in Indiana Jones. And at the time of Jesus, God's house is God's house because God lives in that space. But he is veiled in that space to protect him from humanity and to protect humanity from the glory of the presence of God. But the gospel says when Jesus dies on the cross with a loud cry, the veil of the temple rips in two from top to bottom. And looking at the cross with Jesus dying on it, we are then again given a unveiling, a revelation, a disclosure, a transfiguration of the human Jesus as the dying, suffering God. Think about these two mountains. One represents glory. The other represents shame. One, Jesus is wearing dazzling white clothes. The other, he is being stripped of his clothes, and the soldiers are casting lots for his clothes at the bottom of the cross. On transfiguration, Jesus is flanked by Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. At Golgotha, Jesus is crucified between two lawbreakers, two criminals, outcasts. At transfiguration, a bright cloud descends on the mountain. At Golgotha, darkness covers the earth. At the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter blurts out his impetuous silliness. But at Golgotha, Peter, Jesus' closest disciples, the one that in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says to him, you are the one I'm giving the keys to heaven and earth for. He denied Jesus. He's run away. He's betrayed him. He's nowhere to be found. At the Mount of Transfiguration, the voice of God is heard, affirming Jesus' divine identity as his son. But at Golgotha, it is a Roman centurion who has been in charge of executing Jesus, of torturing him to death, of asphyxiating him on the cross, who looks at the manner in which he dies and says, surely this man was God's son. That connection between the Mount of Transfiguration and the crucifixion is crucial because as Jesus comes down off the mountain, he says to his disciples, don't talk about this until I will be resurrected, indicating that he's going to suffer and die. And later on in Matthew's Gospel, again, we, I think, an image of how Jesus' gaze really works. Because in Matthew 25, Jesus says, when the judgment finally comes and God separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left hand, and he will say to the sheep, come on in, inherit the kingdom of God. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was homeless and you offered me shelter. I was in jail and you visited me. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. 
And the sheep will say, when did we see you, Lord? Hungry and thirsty and homeless and a refugee and in prison and an outcast. And Jesus says, whatever you did for the least of these, my sisters and brothers, you did for me. There is the gaze of Jesus. Because in our world, people who are malnourished, people who are homeless, people who are jailed and felons and convicts, those people have nothing in their appearance that necessarily makes them attractive to us. But as Jesus looks at them, they are transfigured. He sees himself in them. And so when you look out at the world and you see the least of these, are you seeing them as Jesus sees them? Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said, sinners are beautiful because they are loved. They are not loved because they are beautiful. Sinners are beautiful because they are loved. They are not loved because they are beautiful. So my challenge to you then, and the challenge I take into myself too, is to not want to gaze up at that vision in the sky of Jesus and hopefully generate for myself a mountaintop experience. What I'm more interested in is whether I have the capacity to look out into the world to my family, to my friends, to my neighbors, to people I meet in my life, to people on the streets, to my coworkers, even to those really annoying, irritating eighth grade boys in my world religions class. And can I look upon them with the gaze of Jesus and see them transfigured as Jesus was transfigured before the disciples? Amen. Please stand as you are able. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light.